I'm Jessica Powers. And I'm James Davis. This week we are entering the Twilight Zone, otherwise known as cross-border insolvency post-Brexit. In particular, we'll take a look at issues of recognition and enforcement in EU member states. Yes, after a long goodbye, we've finally waved farewell to the EU insolvency regulation and with it the automatic recognition of domestic insolvency proceedings across the European Union. Now, I remember as long ago as February 2019 ending an insolvency update seminar with a brief reference to the Insolvency Amendment EU Exit Regulations 2019 and commenting that they were only intended to apply in a no-deal situation. We have a deal, don't we? Well, we have a deal, but not one that makes any mention of insolvency proceedings in all 1,300 pages. James, you mistake me there because I was clearly talking about the oven ready deal, otherwise known as the withdrawal agreement, not the actual deal that contains no mention of insolvency proceedings. The withdrawal agreement has one mention of insolvency proceedings. Yes, so the withdrawal agreement contains, uh, which is not the Brexit deal uh, that we got at Christmas, contains Article 67. Uh, which deals with uh, the EU insolvency regulation during the idea was the transition period. And it states that uh, the EU insolvency regulation would apply as long as the main proceedings were opened before the end of the transition period. So that meant before 11pm on the 31st of December last year. Now, we're familiar, of course, with Section 129 of the Insolvency Act, which provides that winding up is deemed to commence at the time of presentation of the petition. So a sort of retrospective effect on when proceedings are said to have started. How does that interact then with this concept of proceedings being opened? Well, I'm glad you asked that because we have this relating back idea with the making of a winding up order. But the the critical point for opening proceedings in winding up and bankruptcy is the is the making of uh, the order, the making of the winding up order of the bankruptcy order. It doesn't relate back. So if you have a petition that was presented in December, but which is up for hearing, say, in the next couple of weeks, then when the winding up order is made, those proceedings will have been opened after the end of the transition period. And accordingly, the EU insolvency regulations won't apply. Now, it's slightly different, obviously, with out-of-court processes, um, with uh, things like voluntary winding up, CVAs and IVAs. Uh, It's going to be taken as the date of the resolution of of the appropriate body of creditors or or the body of members, if it's a member's winding up. In in an administration where the appointment's being made out of court, it will be the time of the filing of the notice of appointment. So let's hope nobody was filing anything at 11 o'clock on the 31st of December, because we could find ourselves in another case uh, on the timing of appointments. Um, and interestingly, and this is this is a case where there there is actually an authority, a case called Reurofood uh, from back in 2006, the appointment of a provisional liquidator will also be considered the opening of the, the proceedings. So if you've got a provisional liquidator appointed, that is a that is a court based process and that actually uh, becomes sort of the operative event. In practical terms, what this means is the EU insolvency regulation is not coming to an immediate end in terms of its relevance, because obviously uh, all the insolvency proceedings that have been opened uh, right up to the 31st of December will continue to have uh, the EU regulation applying in terms of recognition and in terms of dealing with other EU jurisdictions. 
it's where those proceedings are opened after 31st of December that actually we'll be stepping into the brave new world. Putting aside those transitional provisions then, shall we look forward to the sunny uplands of the post-Brexit world and consider the position in terms of recognition and enforcement of EU insolvency proceedings here, first of all? So the insolvency brackets amendment brackets EU brackets regulations 2019 as amended, uh, which you referred to earlier, uh, effectively import quite a lot of the basic concepts of EU insolvency law into UK law, but there are a number of amendments and quite important ones which are made. Probably most notably is, is the concept of Comey, the centre of main interest, is being maintained. UK courts uh, under UK jurisdiction have uh, the power to open insolvency proceedings if the debt is Comey's in the UK or if the debt is Comey's in the EU, but there is an establishment in the, in the UK. But what certainly has been removed is the concept of main and secondary insolvency proceedings. Our domestic regulations have wiped all reference to those terms from our adoption of the EU insolvency regulation. Exactly. And all the court UK courts uh, have to do now is to decide whether they have jurisdiction to open the insolvency proceedings on the basis of the debtors Comey. Uh, and as a point of sort of practical change, winding up petitions are no longer going to include the statement or need to include the statement as to the applicability uh, of the EU insolvency regulations and whether or not the, these proceedings are going to be main or secondary. Where you're dealing with out-of-court insolvency processes, the decision of whether or not uh, effectively it's a UK jurisdiction issue is going to fall to the IP appointed. So again, we're thinking there about CVAs and IVAs and matters such as that. Interestingly, James, I was in the winding up court last week and the, judge, the judges have already adopted the new terminology when making a winding up order. Uh, no longer is it, and these are main proceedings, it's insofar as the EU regulation continues to apply, etc. Um, so clearly this has all been fed into the judiciary, which as ever is reassuring. But in terms of what we've set out, that really is the extent of what has been adopted from the EU insolvency regulation into domestic legislation. All of the articles in the EU insolvency regulation which deal with recognition and enforcement of insolvency proceedings have been completely jettisoned. We do still have the UNCTRAL model law. That's implemented in Great Britain by the Cross-Border Insolvency Regulations 2006. They apply whenever assistance is sought in Great Britain by a foreign court or a foreign representative in connection with foreign proceedings, or where there are foreign proceedings and British insolvency proceedings in respect to the de same debtor taking place concurrently. So you have parallel proceedings, or uh, in circumstances where creditors or interested persons in a foreign state uh, have an interest in requesting the commencement of or participating in uh, proceedings under British insolvency law. And as you say, James, this has been implemented for a long time. But the position now post-Brexit, of course, is that any European Union insolvency practitioners will be subject to the same procedures as all other foreign insolvency practitioners. So they will have to make an application to the court here for recognition or to commence proceedings under British insolvency law. Yes, and it's worth recognising that under the cross-border insolvency regulations and the model law in this context, there is still the concept of main and non-main proceedings, 
Uh, and if the High Court is recognising foreign proceedings, it will need to decide whether they are foreign mean proceedings, i.e. they're taking place in the state in which the debtor has his comey, or they are foreign non-main proceedings, i.e. the debtor's got an establishment in the foreign state uh, where the proceedings are taking place, but their comey lies elsewhere. And of course, under the model law, our courts also have the discretion to cooperate with foreign courts or foreign representatives. So having the unsuitable model law, does that offer a route for British insolvency practitioners to obtain assistance in EU member states post-Brexit? It, it does in theory, but unfortunately, uh, it's only been adopted in four EU member states, uh, and they're Greece, Poland, Romania and Slovenia. And of course, one of the reasons probably why it hasn't been adopted in more is because the EU has had its own cross-border insolvency regulations, which have probably taken away some of the perceived need for this. Now, in those four countries, Greece, Poland, Romania and Slovenia, uh, a British insolvency practitioner can apply for assistance. The model law provides some assistance to insolvency practitioners. It, it provides that foreign proceedings should be recognised in a signatory jurisdiction. Those foreign proceedings take place in a state where the debtor has their comey. So again, we're not going to be seeing the back of that concept. Uh, the insolvency practitioner can apply to court for the foreign proceedings to be recognised to give them an official status. And the foreign court will then cooperate to the maximum extent possible and consistent with that country's law. So as the model law forms the basis of the cross-border insolvency regulations 2006 in the UK, there is some judicial consideration of the, the CBIR. Um, so is that going to assist British insolvency practitioners in understanding the approach that will be taken in those, those four other jurisdictions? Well, again, you'd think so, but I'm afraid there's no room for safe assumptions in the territory we're now in. And that's because interpretation of the model law is a matter for the relevant foreign jurisdiction national court and how it sits with local insolvency law. So just because a judge has reached a decision here on issues of interpretation, for example, doesn't mean that that will automatically translate when being considered in Greece, Poland, Romania or Slovenia. So apart from those four EU member states which have adopted the unsuitable model law, British IPs are being left in a position of having to grapple with the law of each individual EU member state if they need assistance in the EU, right? Um, yes, that's right. And the Insolvency Service has recently produced, and by recently I mean last Friday, and yes, that's two weeks after we actually left, some uh, helpful guidance, a, a bit in the manner of the nutshell guides, which I'm sure um, you never used, Jessica, on the uh, legal conversion course, and I certainly didn't on my degree. It's 17 pages, and it runs through with input from lawyers in those jurisdictions, all of the member states, uh, and just sets out in very in very bold terms the process. It deals in a bit more depth with the seven uh, member states who are the EU's most significant trading partners by value. And you'll be glad to know that uh, it uses the term executor uh, a lot, because if there's one thing uh, that we know from this government is you can never have enough gratuitous Latin. But in layman's terms, that means official recognition uh, of your status as an office holder in the foreign jurisdiction. I think that means, James, we're about to embark on our European tour, the closest either of us will get to holiday this year, I imagine. Indeed, and what better way to go than virtually considering insolvency law across 27 member states uh, in sundry order. So, a short halt across the Irish Sea to the Republic of Ireland. 
Now, this is, uh, this is a tricky situation in terms of quirks of history, because before the EU regulation, in fact, Ireland had a recognition in their Companies Act, I think it's 1963, automatic recognition of winding up in, in UK courts. What happened was Ireland then updated its company legislation during the course of the, the existence of the, the EU regulation. So there was no need to carry that provision forward. There is a replacement provision in the current Irish company legislation, which could be brought into effect for automatic recognition on a, a effectively ministerial um, request by Irish ministers, uh, not by our government. But absent that, that means that there's no process at the moment for automatic recognition of British insolvency proceedings uh, in the Republic of Ireland. And not unsurprisingly, because they had bigger fish to fry, neither the Good Friday Agreement nor the Northern Ireland Protocol annexed to the Withdrawal Agreement deal with recognition of insolvency as between uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Ireland has yet to adopt the unsuitable model law, and so it therefore looks likely that UK insolvency practitioners will have to apply to the Irish courts, relying on the inherent jurisdiction of the Irish courts to recognise orders of foreign courts. On the other hand, an Irish insolvency practitioner who is seeking the assistance of the courts of Great Britain can apply under Section 426 of the Insolvency Act. Crossing the channel now to Belgium, Belgian law thankfully recognises UK insolvency proceedings automatically, but you do need to make an application in the Belgian courts if you need to take enforcement steps against assets. There's also provision under Belgian law for an interim order to be made to preserve assets pending recognition of your status. Once the application is, is granted and the British IPs recognised in Belgium, then they can take advantage of the various forms of assistance that will be available under the Belgian law, and they can deal with the debtors' assets in Belgium. But worth bearing in mind that if they are doing so, then UK insolvency practitioners are going to have to comply with Belgian law in exercising their powers and dealing with the assets in Belgium. So we would, as ever, strongly recommend that local law advice is taken. Also, the IP is going to need legal representation in order to make requests of the Belgian court. So your first port of call is going to be finding a local Belgian lawyer. Now, moving across the, uh, the Belgian border into the Netherlands, recognition and enforcement in the Netherlands is entirely governed by the local law. But there's a decision of the Netherlands Supreme Court from 2019, which means that foreign insolvency judgments are automatically recognised provided certain conditions are met. So those are that the foreign proceedings meet the requirements of a fair trial, the recognition doesn't uh, violate public policy, and there's no conflicting uh, legal judgment recognisable in the Netherlands. Now, what the government guidance note doesn't deal with is how that sits with non court judgment-based processes. So again, things like CBAs and IVAs and potentially also out-of-court appointments, because in those circumstances, there aren't, it's, a, it's a little hard to square the requirement that the foreign proceedings meet the requirements of a fair trial in circumstances where there hasn't been a fair trial, or where there hasn't been a trial, uh, fair or not. I'm not suggesting CBAs and IVAs are inherently unfair, although I'm sure some landlords might beg to differ at the moment.
I make no comment on that, James, and move swiftly south to France. So in France, UK insolvency practitioners are only granted limited recognition to do things like, for example, realising funds from a French branch bank account. So unless the insolvency practitioner obtains an order from the French court permitting them to deal with the assets in France, the debtor is treated as if they are not the subject of any insolvency proceedings in France and therefore can deal with their assets freely. It also means, of course, that creditors can bring proceedings against the debtor in France. So there really is no protection without going to the French courts. Now, again, crossing yet another border, this time moving east and into Germany. Now, this is a far a friendlier regime for British IPs to be working in since Germany's largely imported the EU insolvency regulation into its domestic law. UK insolvency proceedings should be automatically recognised, provided that the UK court has jurisdiction, for example, because the debt is conies in the UK, uh, and that that recognition does not violate matters of, of public policy in Germany. Importantly, you don't need an order from the German courts to deal with the debtor's assets, but it might be sensible in some circumstances to apply for official recognition to put matters beyond dispute. From that relatively friendly regime to yet another difficult one in Italy, the position there is pretty similar to France. There is automatic recognition, but it is pretty limited, and you will need a court order to deal with any assets in Italy. Interestingly, uh, the powers of a UK insolvency practitioner in Italy are limited to the powers which would have been exercisable by an Italian insolvency practitioner. So always on the horizon is the prospect of a creditor in Italy taking issue with what an insolvency practitioner is doing uh, if an Italian insolvency practitioner wouldn't have been able to do it. So again, mirroring really the position in Belgium as to local limits being posed on the exercise of powers internationally. And finally, for the purposes of the main trading partners, so these are the people that the insolvency service guidance deals with in a little more depth. We move uh, to the sunnier climes of Spain. Now, there's no automatic recognition of UK insolvency proceedings in Spain, so an application to the Spanish courts is going to be necessary in all cases if an insolvency practitioner is needing to deal with anything uh, in Spain. And of course, this is very much uh, a simplified version. Those are the seven main trading partners, but there are another 20 countries in the government guidance where the, the guidance is not as detailed. And it is, of course, very possible, likely even in this day and age, that an insolvency practitioner who's having to deal with issues that have crossed one border will find that it crosses a number of borders. And the fact that you've been recognised in one country will not automatically count uh, as recognition in another. Now, we recognise how incredibly tedious it would be for us to read through all possible EU member states' approach to recognition and enforcement. So to liven things up, we have taken a retro leaf out of the Wheel of Fortune book and have the New Square Chambers spin the wheel of post-Brexit insolvency jurisdiction game to play. Not really a game, I suspect, and certainly no prizes. Um, but we have certain assets and certain jurisdictions. So, James, if you'd like to give that wheel a spin and see where we land. So first up, we have a yacht in Malta. How delightful. Uh, perhaps another spin, James, just so we have uh, something else to talk about. And we've got a holiday home in Portugal. 
I'm sure the UK Insolvency Practitioner would be delighted with that asset hall and the opportunities to go and inspect them in person, assuming he can get or she can get whatever required visa there is now to enter Europe. Let's start then with the yacht. So in Malta, uh, recognition of foreign insolvency proceedings is not automatic, but they will generally be recognised and a foreign insolvency judgment will be enforced unless there are grounds for non-recognition. A UK insolvency practitioner doesn't generally require a recognition enforcement order from the Maltese court unless challenged in order to dispose of assets in Malta. Uh, so in our scenario, we are expecting that the UK insolvency practitioner should be free to deal with the yacht as they see fit. Now in Portugal, with the holiday and the position is going to be different. A court application is going to be required for recognition and enforcement of the UK proceedings and in order to realise that holiday home. Uh, now the UK proceedings will be recognised if certain conditions are met, such as the debtors came is in the UK, the UK jurisdiction has been established by an equivalent connecting factor, and in addition that the UK proceedings do not contravene Portuguese public policy, say for example that they have followed due process. And in those circumstances, the uh, IP can get recognised in Portugal and can then deal with the assets. But certainly in that situation, the IP is going to need to be instructing Portuguese lawyers to be able to take those steps to get the recognition and get the realisation process moving. Now, Jessica, if you'd like to uh, spin the wheel again and we'll see where our next IP is going to end up. And this time we have 1,500 Sarah Lund-themed jumpers in a deserted warehouse in Copenhagen. I'll give the, give the wheel another spin. And now we've got 15,000 kroner held by a local agent in Eastad, Sweden, who's been running Kurt Volander-themed tours on our behalf. This is obviously a failed Nordic Noir company. And nothing to do whatsoever, James, with what you've been watching during lockdown. I've been watching all of this since long before lockdown, so I have no excuse. Well, at least you're not late to the Scandi Noir party. Denmark is a problem for the insolvency practitioner, as there is no recognition of UK insolvency proceedings, and the UK IP has no legal power to deal with assets there without opening local proceedings. But this is nothing new, uh, and insofar as insolvency practitioners have had to deal with assets in Denmark historically, um, they're well used to this position, since Denmark was not a signatory to the EU insolvency regulation. Now we're going to go across the bridge into Sweden. UK proceedings are recognised automatically, and that does include the power to deal with assets in Sweden. However, the right to deal with assets is not protected from competing claims, such as creditors or local insolvency proceedings. Uh, so Swedish proceedings can be opened at the request of a creditor or possibly also the UK insolvency office holder. So it's unclear um, as to whether or not uh, a, a UK office holder is going to have the standing to open local proceedings in Sweden which would be necessary to trigger uh, the Swedish insolvency process, which would then, one presumes, protect those assets from competing claims and effectively a, who gets their first approach amongst the creditors. Now, our intrepid insolvency practitioner, whilst on a reasonable and proportionate trip to Sweden to investigate the assets, uh, finds a series of obscure clues revealing an asset over the border in Finland, 
but the plot thickens. So in Finland, recognition of UK insolvency proceedings will need a court application. And until the Finnish court has recognised the UK proceedings, the IP will lack the authority to deal with any assets in Finland. So I'm afraid our IP is going to have to hole up in a hotel in Finland and await the outcome of his application to court. I hope what that has demonstrated uh, with that whistle-stop tour around Europe is that this is all a bit of a minefield. And of course, this is the UK view of uh, the substantive law. And we all know that when dealing with banks, say, that the problems can arise even when uh, an officeholder status should be automatically recognised. But a, a bank or, or somebody else holding an asset wants to see a local jurisdiction document to confirm that the office holder is entitled to, to receive the assets and, and can give a good receipt for them. There's also going to be obvious issues of proportionality. We already know one of the main drivers when advising an insolvency practitioner is the cost-benefit analysis. And if, for example, you have a low-value asset in a jurisdiction in the EU, and you're going to need to instruct local lawyers to advise uh, and then perhaps even make a formal application to the courts of that jurisdiction to deal with the asset. Are the costs of those proceedings going to outweigh any benefit from realising that low value asset? This does appear to be another hurdle unnecessarily placed in the way of insolvency practitioners who quite frequently will be dealing with individuals and companies that have traded heavily or have assets in the EU because of how interlocked our history has been over the last 60 odd years. And I think um, that's right and one can see very readily scenarios say with a, with a parent company in one jurisdiction stock in another jurisdiction and a commercial agent in a third jurisdiction uh, holding funds and an argument as to who those funds should go to. What, uh, what resources uh, are currently available to help IPs uh, get a grip on these issues, short of them uh, ringing around I- I- every lawyer in Europe who says they deal with insolvency law. Well, there are some resources, but that doesn't necessarily preclude the requirement to ring around. Now, all that seems to be available at the moment is there is a list of English-speaking lawyers in various EU member states on the website of the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, and the European e-justice portal also has some basic information about the fees for bringing proceedings in various EU member states as well. Um, But as I said, James, I don't think that's going to remove the requirement to get on the phone, work out what the position is and how much it's all going to cost. I I, I agree. And uh, R3 has uh, a bit of information on its website since the deal, but again, not a huge amount because it's all happened relatively recently. It's got a similar breakdown, albeit in table form, of the information you get in insolvency service advice. Um, Members of R3, like me, you get once a year the insult directory, which breaks down by jurisdiction members of R3 equivalent bodies in those jurisdictions. So that may also be a useful route to tracking down appropriately qualified local lawyers. But I think um, insolvency practitioners in the future are, are just going to have to get used as, the, as huge sections of the economy are to the fact that once something goes across a border, it's going to be a lot more complicated to sort it out than it was before. And on that cheery note, I think our time is up, James. Uh, So thank you for joining me and discussing this and hopefully you, our listeners, found that informative and helpful. 
we emphasise as ever the importance of getting good legal advice, particularly when you're looking at cross-border issues. So until next time, thank you very much for listening.